1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing Dave King. Engineering Today, we'll hear from Kevin Goose, author of Redeeming Your Past and the Slaughter of Nigerian Christians, warrants International Attention. We'll talk about it later in the second hour of today's program. But first, some of the day's headlines. Well, as you probably know, former President Donald Trump today, he pled not guilty in federal court to all four federal charges stemming from special counsel Jack Smith's investigation and a 2020 election interference and the Capitol riot of January 6th of 2021. Uh, Trump, the uh, 2024 GOP frontrunner, is charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. The the former president pled not guilty. Trump traveled from his resort in Bedminster, New Jersey, on Thursday to Washington, D.C. His first court appearance took place At the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, the indictment comes out of Smith's investigation into whether the former president or other officials and entities interfered with the peaceful transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election, including the certification of the Electoral College vote on January 6th. U.S. Magistrate Judge Moxilla I think it's Upadhaya presided over the uh, proceedings. Judge Tanya Chutkin uh, will preside over the trial. Chutkin is a former assistant public defender. Before her appointment to the bench by President Barack Obama, has handed uh, has handled several cases involving individuals who entered the Capitol on January 6th and was very harsh with their sentencing in the courtroom. The judge laid out how the proceeding would go and asked that Trump be seated closer to a microphone. So that he could answer her questions. She first asked his name and age. Trump, Donald J. Trump, John 7777. Well, the uh, judge then advised Trump of counts of the indictment that he was facing and the potential penalties associated with being convicted on the counts. The judge also read Trump's his rights. Well, the former president was asked how he would plead to the four counts against him. He responded succinctly, not guilty. Uh, Trump was then advised of the conditions of his release. He must not violate federal, state, or local law, must appear in court, and must um, serve any sentence the court may impose. He may not communicate about the facts of the case to anyone known to be a witness in the case. Trump posted to his uh, Truth Social late Wednesday, saying that the case will hopefully be moved to an impartial venue, such as the politically unbiased nearby state of West Virginia, impossible to get a fair trial in Washington, D.C., which is over 95% anti-Trump and for which I have called for a federal takeover in order to bring our capital back to greatness, Trump posted. It is now a high crime embarrassment to our nation and indeed to the world. This indictment is all about election interference, end quote. Well, on January 6th, as you well know, pro-Trump Um, uh, rioters breached the U.S. Capitol during a joint session of Congress to certify the Electoral College results in favor of President Biden. The House of Representatives drafted articles of impeachment against him on a charge of inciting an insurrection for January 6th, a bit of an overstatement of what actually happened in my perspective making him the first and only president in history to be impeached and ultimately acquitted twice. Well, this is the second federal indictment the former president faces out of Smith's investigation. Trump also uh, leaves the 2024 GOP presidential primary field. He's already pled not guilty in federal court in the Southern District of Florida to 37 counts related to his alleged improper retention of classified records from his presidency. Now those charges include willful retention of national defense information, conspiracy to obstruct justice and false statements. The former president was charged with an additional 3 counts as part of a superseding indictment out of that probe last week. Trump is the first former president in US history to face federal criminal charges. The former president posted again to his Truth Social on Thursday morning accusing the Biden administration of bringing criminal charges against him to Drain funds from his 2024 presidential campaign. Quoting, Look, it's not my fault that my political opponent in the Democratic Party, crooked Joe Biden, has told his attorney general to charge the leading, by far, Republican nominee and former president of the United States, me, uh, with as many crimes as can be concocted so that he is forced to spend large amounts of time and money to defend himself, Trump said. He went on. The Dems don't want to uh, run against me or they would not be doing this unprecedented weaponization of justice. But soon in 2024, it will be our turn. MAGA, end quote. Well, campaign finance documents show that the former president, the Republican presidential frontrunner, burned through at least forty two point eight million dollars this year. Much of it used to cover costs related to his mounting legal peril. The former president has thirty one point eight million dollars dollars uh, on hand. Trump has also pled not guilty to 34 counts in New York in April, stemming from Manhattan District Attorney uh, Alvin Bragg's investigation. He's accused of falsifying business records related to hush money payments made during the 2016 campaign. Well, the federal judge who will oversee the former president's case in Washington related to the challenge of the 2020 election outcome, has a reputation of being tough on the January 6th Capitol riot defendant. She didn't cross the line or or um offer anything illegal, but uh, was very tough. An appointee of Trump's predecessor, President Barack Obama, U.S. Drug um, District Judge Tanya Chutkin, has ruled against the Trump administration in the past, as well as against Trump as an individual. After his third incite, indictment rather on Tuesday, the 45th president will, uh, was arraigned in District of Columbia today by a judge standing in, uh, but the uh, Judge Chutkin will be the one who will ultimately hear this case. Now, he is attempting to have this all moved to another venue. He doesn't believe he can get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. We'll talk on another day about um, how likely that is. Uh, but we'll take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit about the judge who will be uh, overseeing this case. If, in fact, it remains at the venue in Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice
1: Show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: we're back you're listening to the Georgine rice show coming up later in the program kevin goose redeeming your past well we're talking about uh, some things to know about the judge who will be presiding over this third indictment against the president with four counts Uh, the judge is 61 earned a reputation for taking a hard line on sentencing for the january 6th rioters her background before the bench is one of defending accused criminals, white-collar defendants, and those who couldn't afford lawyers. She was born in uh, Kingston, Jamaica. She received her bachelor's degree in economics from George Washington University, graduated uh, from University of Pennsylvania Law School. After three years in private practice, she was hired by the District of Columbia's Public Defender Service, where she uh, was a trial attorney and supervisor. Eleven years with a public defender, she joined Another firm, a law firm where President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, previously worked. And while there, she specialized in litigation and white-collar criminal defense. So she's on the other side of the question in this case. Uh, Chutkin was... um, Indignant about uh, comparisons between the riots that broke out in cities across the country after the May 2020 police involvement uh, involved killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the January 6th uh, Capitol riot. She even invoked the mostly peaceful narrative for describing the riots by Black Lives Matter and Antifa militants. She either um, matched or exceeded prosecutors recommendations in 19 of the 38 sentences after other judges handed down sentences more lenient. Than what prosecutors asked for, so she was very tough on them in related uh, uh, issues in this case. Um, presidents are not kings ruling versus Trump in November of 21. The judge ruled against Trump, who is a plaintiff in an emergency motion to prevent the National Archives from providing information to the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Trump lawyers argued giving records to the committee would undermine privileges aimed to protect the president's ability to have candid conversations. She ruled against then sitting president Trump. His position that he may Override the express will of the executive branch appears to be premised on the notion that his executive power exists in perpetuity. Chotkin wrote in her opinion, but presidents are not kings and plaintiff. Uh, the plaintiff is not president. And finally, two rulings versus uh, the Trump administration. In 2017, the first year of the Trump administration, uh, this judge ruled that the Office of Refugee Resettlement must allow a juvenile illegal immigrant in the custody of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement to have an abortion. That was in the uh, case of Garza versus Hargan. I remember that case well from back in the day. 2019, Shutkin ruled that Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, illegally delayed the um, implementation of the equity um and IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act regulations that update how states calculate racial disparities in special education. So she's had some uh, dealings with the uh, president either while in office or uh, post-president uh, giving us some indication of how she's ruled in those cases. But again, this is a separate case altogether. Uh, it is believed that the president will seek a different venue, believing that he cannot receive a... a A fair trial in Washington, D.C. The Trump indictment criminalizes political dissent. That's what the uh, political editors uh, from the Patriot Post suggest in this case, this most recent, the third indictment of possible four. Uh, They write that we covered the latest Trump indictment at length yesterday. Journalist Daniel Greenfield adds uh, to that analysis with some critical points. And I thought they were worth mentioning here today. They write that the serial indictments and investigations of former President Trump are meant to rig the 2024 presidential election. But the latest indictment is unique in rigging even its aftermath. Previous indictments of the former president had broken all sorts of new legal ground by turning misdemeanors into felonies and deciding that the statute of limitations is just a suggestion. But the January 6th indictment by Democrat special counsel Jack Smith criminalizes election challenges or at least election challenges against Democrats, and along with that, all political dissent. The January 6th indictments contends that Trump's election challenges were a crime. Uh, what does this um, this latest indictment offer that the previous indictments did not? This one is designed to intimidate any Republicans who might seek to challenge the outcome of the 2024 presidential election. Unsatisfied with indicting the leading GOP primary candidate in order to rig the election, Democrats are criminalizing political opposition before and after the upcoming election. Greenfield argues that the indictment is a political screed from start to finish. He wonders why, if this is the standard, Al Gore wasn't indicted or why the Russian collusion hoaxers are still free. Then they go on. When Democrats spread lies about an election, they... Uh, Get back deals and evening slots on MSNBC. And sometimes, like Gore, they even get Oscars and Nobel Peace Prizes. Challenging elections has been a traditional, a traditional practice going back over two centuries to the 1800 presidential election. Free nations with open elections are not afraid of election challenge. And the Democrats have spent a fortune on their own election challenge efforts. The Biden campaign spent $20 million on over 60 Post-election lawsuits in 2020. Nevertheless, Smith, the longtime Democrat crony, isn't going to come out with indictments on any Democrat. Instead, he turned 18 U.S. Code 371 into an open-ended tool for suppressing a wide range of political dissent. Other parts of the law are likewise, uh, well, I won't use the word they use, by Smith's ridiculous twisting, which will create an unprecedented suppression of the political opposition that will not end with Trump or with the 2024 presidential election. He then wonders about the Electoral College itself. The January 6th indictment leans heavily on editorializing about the threat to democracy, accusing the former president of destabilizing lies about election fraud, which targeted a red rock function of the federal government, while failing to actually establish why challenging federal functions ought to be a crime. If lobbying state legislatures... and. Searching for alternative electors is a crime that virtually every single president before 1900 would have been locked up, not to mention aspiring political figures like Alexander Hamilton. And every time Democrats lose an election, they start plotting to eliminate the Electoral College and have been seeking to do it through the back door using comprehensive measures like the national popular vote vote. Interstate Compact. Should the NPVIC and the states participating in it be treated as a criminal conspiracy against a bedrock function of the federal government? Jack Smith's indictment has created a precedent. After further argument, he eventually concludes with a broader picture. Democrats have spent the last two generations criminalizing political dissent. Environmental activists demand that oil and gas companies face fraud charges because they deny global warming. Police departments face civil rights investigations when they challenge contentions of systematic racism. The January 6th indictment is part of a totalitarian program that rejects the idea of political dissent and the centrality of debate within the marketplace of ideas in our system. This indictment is not just about threat to a former president, but to the Bill of Rights. If Jack Smith's January 6th indictment succeeds, freedom dies and dissent becomes illegal. To disagree with leftists will no longer just lead to a loss of work or arguments on social media but arrests trials and prison sentences. What is at stake here is whether America will survive. I find it rather interesting that both sides are suggesting unless their side wins, America may not survive that this is on the left, the biggest event since um well, any event that's ever taken place here in the United States. If the president the former president loses, then in fact America will not survive on the other side of the equation. This is where we are as a nation today, and it's um it's a sad situation. Was the uh the article an overstatement of of what's underway? Well, you can decide. And other news, Jimmy Falla uh joined the uh Ingram and uh, Angle with a, a guest uh to talk about the uh, the New York Times article by David Brooks that shocked political commentators on Twitter when he admitted he and the so-called elite have used self-serving tactics to maintain power and a sense of moral superiority over the Trump supporters they detest we'll share more about that it's a rather interesting piece that came as a surprise to a lot of people again this is a a piece a column written by David Brooks um who is an anti-Trump New York Times columnist we'll get into that in just a few moments you're listening to the Georgine Rice show uh, coming up in our second hour we'll talk about redeeming your past with Kevin Goose we'll also uh, look at concern growing over the uh, slaughter of Nigerian Christians that many suggest warrants international attention whether or not that attention will be given under the current administration Remains to be seen. It was in place under the previous administration, withdrawn, and now there are calls to restore. What is a growing problem, particularly for Christians in the country? You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. Well, anti Trump New York Times columnist David Brooks shocked political commentators on Twitter when he admitted he and the so-called elite, as he put it, have used self-serving tactics to maintain power and a sense of moral superiority over Trump supporters they detest. I asked you to try on an, uh, try on a vantage point. In which we anti-Trumpsters, he writes, are not the eternal good guys. In fact, we are the bad guys, Brooke wrote in his column on Wednesday. Again, shocking his readers. Over the last decades, we've taken over whole professions and locked everyone else out, Brooks wrote, of the liberal elite in America. The column detailed how the educated class imagined themselves as the forces of progress and enlightenment to appease their own egos as part of a broader tale that paints them as enlightened and Trump supporters as bigots and fools. Brooks pointed out that in the media world, that was once a world-class profession, Ivy League and other elite-level college graduates have come to dominate major newsrooms. When I began my journal- journalism career in Chicago in the 1980s, there were still some old, crusty, working-class guys around the newsroom. Now we're not only a college-dominated profession, we're an elite college-dominated profession as well. Brooks wrote that members of the liberal elite also segregate ourselves into A few uh, booming metro areas, San Francisco, D.C., Austin, and so on, he wrote. The educated class dominance also extends to politics on a national level, he wrote. Armed with all kinds of economic, cultural, and political power, we support policies that help ourselves. We built an entire social order that sorts and excludes people on the basis of the quality that we possess most, academic achievement. Highly educated parents go to elite schools, marry each other, work at high paying professional jobs and pour enormous resources into our children. We get into the same elite schools, marry each other and pass their exclusive class privileges down from generation to generation. Brooks wrote, he added this same group has increasingly used buzzy language like problematic cisgender and Latinx that alienate the less educated class and further divides. Brooks, a fierce opponent of Trump, who has called for his imprisonment, said it made sense that working class Americans would flock to a candidate who's waged war on the establishment that's only out for itself, adding Trump was a monster and the elites had correctly identified him as such. It's easy to understand why people in less educated classes would conclude that they are under economic, political, cultural and moral assault. And while they're rallying around Trump as their best warrior against the educated class, he wrote. Trump, who faces unprecedented criminal charges in multiple fronts, has opened up an enormous lead in the 24 GOP field and is the clear frontrunner to win the Republican White House nomination for the third straight time. But the nomination isn't the election. Journalists and political commentators were divided between praise of Brooks, apparent honesty and criticism of his piece on Twitter. Economic Progress senior fellow Russ Green lambasted Brooks for his analysis of elite control of American institutions in a tweet. Surveying modern America, one does not get the impression of elite institutions ruthlessly focused on competence and bottom line outcomes. Not sure what Brooks is smoking. He wrote in another tweet that America's problem isn't excess elite competence. I give David Brooks a lot of credit here. There is self-awareness here and a willingness to admit that perhaps his position in life wasn't entirely due to his talent and intellect. He's so close. Longtime radio journalist Celeste Headley wrote on Thursday, Holy cow, this David Brooks column is a barn burner. National Pulse junior editor Will Upton tweeted, I mean, he's finally figured it out, Upton shared. Screenshots of uh, Brooks claim that Trump uh, understood that there was great demand for a leader who would stick his thumb in the eyes of the liberal elite on a daily basis and reject the whole uh, regime that uh, we wrote in on. And it went on from there. But it was a rather interesting column that, Brought shock and awe to many of its readers, some suggesting he was spot on, others not so much. Meanwhile, the U.S. Department of Justice arrested two U.S. Navy sailors on national security charges relating to China earlier today. It's unclear whether the two cases were connected in any way. The first sailor, a 22 year old assigned to a vessel in San Diego, was arrested on an espionage charge relating to a conspiracy to share intelligence with a Chinese official. The second sailor based in, near Los Angeles is charged with conspiracy and receipt of a bribe from a Chinese official. Department of uh, Justice officials haven 't identified either u s sailor by name in the first case out of central district the de- The defendant, a pretty a petty officer rather who served as a construction engineer, is charged with conspiring with a PRC intelligence officer to collect and transmit sensitive military information about naval operations. The assistant attorney general Matthew Olson said during the briefing earlier today, the defendant allegedly accepted bribes and gave the PRC intelligence officer photographs and videos of military exercise plans, operational orders and electrical systems. In the second case out of the Southern District, the defendant faces charges of espionage and for violating our export control laws for collecting and transmitting sensitive national defense information at the direction of a PRC intelligence officer. As tasked by the intelligence officer, the defendant allegedly transmitted or attempted to transmit more than 50 manuals and other documents containing technical and mechanical data about naval amphibious assault ships, Olson said. Several of these materials were allegedly marked with export control warnings and contained details about the power structure, weapon systems and damage control aboard those ships. Well, Olson said, "China stands apart from all other adversarial nations, and the threat it poses to our national security. China is unrivaled in the audacity and the range of its malign effort to subvert our laws." Was a rather shocking disclosure. Well, a Portland doctor said a homeless man knocked her unconscious while walking in the city, and then she waited more than twenty minutes without a police response. I don't hold the police accountable for all of this at all. I hold our city accountable for defunding the police. Uh, Dr. Mary Constantino, a radiologist, uh, said in a national interview, we don't have enough police force to protect our citizens, and we did this to ourselves, she went on to say. The attack happened shortly after 1030 on Friday night. One minute, Constantino was walking in southwest Portland with a friend. The next, she woke up on the ground, blood pouring out of her mouth. She was sure she was about to be killed and immediately dialed 911. Her situation is not unusual. Portlanders have faced increasingly long police response times for years. The average for a high priority call, and this is high priority, is 23.7 minutes in July. According to the Portland Police Bureau data, the longest wait in more than a decade. Constantino, the doctor, said seeing the deterioration of public safety in Portland 100% changed her voting habits. If we don't have police officers to come to the side of somebody who is under attack, then we're on our own, Constantino said. While recent polls suggest former President Donald Trump is currently leading the GOP presidential primary race, a large portion of his supporters are still considering other 2024 candidates, according to a new poll. They may not have any other choice given his legal challenges. A New York Times Siena College poll found that 54 percent of Republican respondents are supporting Trump in his third presidential bid. However, 46 percent are still considering voting for a different candidate. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was the choice candidate of 17 percent of GOP voters, receiving the second most support among the primary contenders. The margins were tighter, however, in a one on one matchup between Trump and his Florida rival, 62 percent to 31 percent, with Trump still holding a significant lead. The Biden administration's effort to regulate pistol braces was dealt a blow on Tuesday after a ruling by a federal appeals court cast doubt on its constitutionality. The Biden administration rule required gun owners to register pistol braces, which are accessories that can be attached to the rear of a gun to make it easier to aim and fire with one hand. Second Amendment proponents argued that the braces make handguns safer and more accurate. But gun control advocates argued the braces could be used to lengthen A concealable handgun making it more dangerous. The regulation, which went into effect June 1st, was one of several steps the president first announced in 21 after a man using a stabilizing brace killed 10 people at a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado. A stabilizing brace was also used in a shooting in Dayton, Ohio. that left nine people dead in 2019 and in a school shooting. That killed six Nash- in Nashville, Tennessee. Two Texas gun owners, the gun rights group and a gun dealer, filed a lawsuit challenging that law. The Texas-based federal judge presiding in the case refused to block the rule, which required registration of the devices and payment of a fee. But in May, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a temporary block of the rule as it applied to the plaintiffs, their customers, and members. The 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans said on Tuesday that the administration's rule requiring registration for the braces was unlikely to survive a legal challenge. Well, the panel voted two to one to extend the block on enforcement for 60 days and sent the case back to U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor in Texas. Judge O'Connor will now consider whether to block enforcement nationwide. For now, gun dealers and owners are permitted to keep owning, buying and selling these devices without registering them. Well, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy said on Wednesday that he doesn't um, believe the U.S. government has told the truth concerning the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attack, specifically on the possible involvement of the Saudi Arabian government. I don't believe the government has told us the truth, he said. Again, I'm driven by evidence and data. What I've seen in the last several years is we have to be skeptical of what the government does tell us. He hopes to be the next uh, Republican uh, nominee and the next president of the United States. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening
1: to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Kevin Goose, Redeeming Your Past. So stay with us. We'll also talk about the slaughter of uh, Nigerian Christians that warrants international attention, what's happening, what has happened, and What's likely to happen next? All of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, U.S. gas prices climbed to their highest point in nine months on Wednesday, driven by rising oil prices that show no signs of easing in the months ahead. The national average stood at three dollars and 80 cents per gallon on Wednesday. Oh, would that we were only paying three dollars and 80 cents. That's well below the prices seen last summer, which saw a record high national average of more than five dollars per gallon, but still a 27 cent increase from last month. The increase is due largely to higher oil prices, which have climbed on the backs of production cuts from OPEC plus uh, members, including Saudi Arabia, which announced it would extend its voluntary cut of one million barrels per day through September. Russia also took some supply off the market, reducing global output by one point five percent. Representative Adam Schiff will make abolishing the Senate filibuster priority number one should he win in 2024, and he's willing to gamble the Democrats' slim majority to do so. Schiff said in a Tuesday interview that his goal is to eliminate the filibuster to move the liberal agenda forward in policy areas such as abortion and climate change, a move that several centrist Senate Democrats, such as Senator Joe Manchin, along with Kirsten Sinema, who's now an independent, have dismissed, claiming the filibuster forces bipartisanship. The Tourism Board, appointed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to oversee Disney World and its complex, announced Tuesday that it will abolish all of its efforts to pursue diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives, or DEI. A release from the board said the initiative discriminated against Americans based on gender and race, costing taxpayers millions of dollars. The Senate went into lockdown on Wednesday afternoon following reports of an active shooter on the Capitol campus, Sparked by a concerning 911 call, according to Capitol Police, uh, the um, Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger he said that uh, officers were able to respond in seconds after receiving a 911 call at 2:30 p.m. saying there was an active shooter, but in the end, there was no confirmation that an active shooter was on campus. This may have been a bogus call, the manager said. Uh, I'm uh, being told there is an active shooting threat in the Russell Senate Office Building. That's the announcement that was made. Staff and Dirksen have been given an announcement to lock all doors, shelter in place and remain quiet. But again, no evidence was found. Illegal crossings across along the U.S. southern border jumped more than 30 percent in July, dealing a blow to the president's new immigration enforcement strategy at a time when his policies are facing multiple legal challenges. U.S. agents made more than one hundred and thirty thousand arrests along the U.S.-Mexico border last month. Preliminary figures show up from ninety nine thousand five hundred forty five in June. Authorities allowed an additional fifty thousand migrants to cross into the United States in July, primarily through the Biden administration programs, allowing asylum seekers to schedule appointments at U.S. ports of entry using the CBP one mobile app. President Biden's Defense Department is pulling active duty troops from the southern border, despite an historic illegal migrant surge. The department's representatives have confirmed that it will withdraw 1,100 active duty troops deployed to the U.S.-Mexico border earlier this year, approved by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. In May, the Department of Homeland Security authorized 1,500 active duty troops to deploy to the southern border for a 90-day mission as the government prepared for an expected surge in uh, alien crossing as uh, the pandemic-related asylum restrictions ended. Initially, illegal border crossings dropped and apprehensions tracked upwards in July, causing 400 uh, soldiers to have their mission extended until the end of August. Over the weekend, NBC News ran a story casting doubt on individuals who believe that they can change their race while at the same time supporting people who think they can change their sex and gender. Logically, it makes no sense at all, but that's the day, the age we're living in. If you can identify as a different sex or gender, there should be no problem in identifying as a different race. But no, we're not having it. The article argues that your race is fixed from birth and can't be changed. It also argues that race isn't real. It's just a social construct. It also argues that the reason you can't change your race is because race isn't real. I'm sorry. My head is spinning. I need just a moment. During a two week operation in July dubbed Operation Cross Country, the FBI was able to locate and free some 200 sex trafficked victims, 59 of whom were children. Furthermore, the operation was able to identify or arrest 68 traffickers and 126 individuals suspected of child sex exploitation. Attorney General Merrick Garland observed sex traffickers exploit and endanger some of the most vulnerable members of our society and cause their victims unimaginable harm. Uh, The president and CEO of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children noted, As a society, we must work together to ensure the protection, support and empowerment of those impacted by this heinous crime. Exactly, but... That cannot happen when much of the um, media reacts to exposing the problem as promoting some conspiracy theory. The numbers scratch the surface, but at least for those individuals, it will make a difference. Well, instead of spending money on expanding the number of officers in the New York City Police Department, Mayor Eric Adams' new plan uh, is to fight uh, spiking a crime in the Big Apple is to spend money on building more housing, more youth job opportunities, and more mental health programs. Wondering how this will immediately and directly tackle surging violent crime in the city is apparent to ask the wrong question. Apparently, uh, the city's gun violence task force calls its $500 million plan the blueprint for community safety, which Adams claims will help stop the violence before it happens on our streets. What it actually looks like is a shakedown of in uh, NYC taxpayers uh, wrapped in a feel-good virtue signal that does nothing to actually stop crime. But we can always hope that we've got that wrong. In other news, Governor DeSantis has—I uh, well, think I mentioned that already. Um, in other news, uh, Russia attacked Ukraine's grain supply to drive up global prices. Uh, Ukraine's main inland port across the Danube River from Romania on Wednesday, sending a global food price higher as it ramped up its use of force to prevent Ukraine from exporting grain. And the Biden administration's regulatory onslaught is some more unrelenting than the heat. With Congress leaving town, the White House last week dumped another truckload of regulations that will cost Americans hundreds of billions of dollars. Corporate lawyers enjoy the... uh, uh, the beach reading. There's much more to say about this regulatory typhoon, which the administration is counting on to press um, uh, core to ignore, as it usually does. But Americans might like to know what regulatory regulations, rather what they're up to uh, while on vacation. The administration is imposing by regulation what it can't pass through Congress and hoping nobody notices. And Congress, of course, is on um, on recess for the month of August. Well, thanks to uh, Joe Biden's de facto open border policy, the massive influx of uh, immigrants has created a surge of homelessness in America's major cities. Cities such as New York City have seen their homeless shelters overfill as thousands of uh, uh, migrants have moved in. With the shelters filled, the population of homeless has spilled out onto the city sidewalks. Tent cities have formed in many public parks filled with homeless, which are now being dubbed Bidenvilles. Of course, many of these Bidenvilles have sprung up in uh, self-proclaimed sanctuary cities and residents are becoming fed up. Well, when they um, go to cast their vote in 2024, there's clearly only uh, one way to think about the subject and one question to ask those who are seeking to occupy the White House. Well, the surge in migrants illegally entering the country hasn't slowed down this summer despite the hot weather. Past summer saw a lull in the number of border crossings, but this year the opposite has occurred. U.S. Border Patrol report that in June there were 99,545 illegal interdicted, and in July the number rose more than one hundred and thirty thousand temperatures reached over one hundred and ten degrees in Arizona for much of July, and they've been very high elsewhere in the southwest. Yet, according to the uh, Border Patrol records last month, saw the highest one month total in illegal crossings in the Tucson sector in 15 years. The reason has everything to do with the Biden immigration policy. Migrants know that if they can get across, then they will most likely be able to stay. So they're willing to brave the oppressive heat. Meanwhile, the Pentagon is now pulling eleven hundred troops from the border after deploying them earlier this year in lieu of Title forty two ending. Well, as mentioned earlier, President Trump appeared in federal court today to face twenty twenty election charges Vice President Pence comes out swinging at Trump following the January 6th indictment, saying he should never be president. Ron DeSantis has agreed to debate Gavin Newsom on Fox News. And the U.S. women's national soccer team sparked controversy in their first three games after a portion of the team appeared to withhold singing and placing their hands over their hearts during the Star Spangled Banner. The U.S. women's national soccer team sparked controversy in their first three games, Um, the uh, Uh, disappointing many fans the pittsburgh synagogue shooter has been sentenced to death by jury and the george soros tide fund fortress is buying bankrupt vice media for 350 million dollars china is investing millions in u.s k-12 through schools and dr jordan peterson is launching an online university to counter left-wing bias well, on this day in history, 1492, Christopher Columbus set sail from Paulo, Spain on a voyage that takes him to present-day Americas. 1807, former Vice President Aaron Burr goes on trial before a federal court in Richmond, Virginia, charged with treason. He would be acquitted less than a month later. 1921, baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis refuses to reinstate the former Chicago White Sox players implicated in the Black Sox scandal, despite their acquittals in a jury trial. 1936, Jesse Owens wins the first of his four gold medals for the United States at the Berlin Olympics as he takes the 100-meter sprint. 1966. Comedian Lenny Bruce, whose brand of satire and dark humor landed him in trouble with the law, is found dead in his Los Angeles home at age 40. 1972. The U.S. Senate ratifies the anti-ballistic missile treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union. The U.S. would unilaterally withdraw from that treaty in 2002. 1981, the U.S. air traffic controllers go on strike. Despite a warning from President Ronald Reagan, they would be fired, and they were. 1987, the Iran-Contra congressional hearings end, with none of the 29 witnesses tying President Ronald Reagan directly to the diversion of arms sale profits to Nicaraguan rebels. 1993, the Senate votes 96 to 3 to confirm Supreme Court nominee Ruth Bader Ginsburg And the following year, 1994, Stephen Breyer is sworn in as Supreme Court's newest justice in a private ceremony at Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist's Vermont home. 2004, the Statue of Liberty pedestal in New York City reopens to the public for the first time since the 9-11 attacks. 2018, on this day in history, China says it is ready to impose tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. imports if Washington goes ahead with its threat to impose duties on $200 billion. In Chinese goods. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, a gunman kills 20 people and injures 26 others after he opens fire at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour and a conversation with Kevin Goose, redeeming your past and a look at what's happening in Nigeria and how they need our help. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're
1: listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in his latest book points out that throughout life's journey, everyone has moments when the past affects the present. We all know what that's about. We come to a crossroads where the past has to be faced, and we know on some level our lives require God's healing. Well, these junctures usually fall under one of three categories. Believing our best is behind us, believing we missed our best through bad decisions, or believing the hurts caused by others or ourselves are insurmountable to live our best life in God. Well, his book is titled Dry Bones. Redeeming your past invites you to see healing. It's not only possible, but that it can be yours for Um, for time and eternity. Well, Kevin Goose is my guest. He served in ministry since 1991. His deep conviction is that anyone can discover all of God's potential for their life. In addition to pastoring, Kevin has done leadership development, been a life coach to young fathers, a director of hospice, and a high school soccer coach. He's been married to Beth since 1989. They have four children, five grandchildren, um, two sons-in-law, and a daughter-in-law. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me.
2: You know, this is a season in which many of us, although not all, have more time to really think about uh, things that we might not um, be able to or, or were able to avoid during times when we were more active outside of our homes. So this is a very timely subject Um, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. So let's begin by uh, drawing attention to the reference that dry bones uh, makes from Scripture. This is a reference to Ezekiel. Can you explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the story uh, what these dry bones represent?
3: Yes, the the dry bones in Ezekiel represents when uh, the Lord shows Ezekiel, the nation of Israel, and basically beyond hope. And as he shows him the vision of these dry bones, he asks him, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he answers wisely, and he says, Lord, um, you know. And then God be- begins to show him how what was dead could be alive again. And so the reference for us in the book is that there are times in our lives, it just happened in my own story, but I know in many others, where we look at, so to speak, things in shambles, and God says, Can I do something with this? And really all we know to say is, well, Lord, you know, meaning we sure hope so, but we're not sure. But God has a way of letting us know that, yes, he can rebuild what was broken and he can make alive what was dead.
2: You know, I think oftentimes when we read in Scripture a reference like that, you've just mentioned from Ezekiel 37. It's easier for us to imagine that that could happen than that our past, our history, the thing we look back on with regret um, can be reconciled, redeemed, and we can move forward in hope. Why do you think it's so challenging for us to, uh, to imagine that we, too, can find uh, redemption, that we can find uh, that our past is redeemed?
3: There are a couple of things I think really are, are pivotal in that. One, I find that for many of us and for many people, forgiving themselves is sometimes harder than forgiving others, because we, we replay thoughts, attitudes, actions, behaviors that we're like, how could I have done that? Or why did this happen? And so I think this forgiving of self, it's almost like we, we practically have a hard time believing that God is greater than what we've done, which ties into the second is, is that we don't make the shift from shame to regret. You know, shame like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, confronted with their sin, they run from God and hide. Where where repentance is where we run to God and say, Lord, you're our only hope. And I think that for some people, whether it's not forgiving themselves or getting stuck in a place of shame, they have a hard time seeing a way forward.
2: Mm -hmm. It seems to me that's uh, ripe territory for the enemy who wants to exploit our inability to fully experience the forgiveness, the redemption, and the healing that God has in store for us, and can literally wreck our lives based on a past experience that we may have repented of and moved on from. Uh, So it's really important, this book, Redeeming Your Past, getting us to a place where we not only accept what God has given us, um, that we are able to move forward without shame, as you've described.
3: Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's this it's the sense that the enemy lies to us when, when he tempts us, somehow believing that God is holding out on us, right? Temptation at its core is I'm questioning God's character, his commands. But then if I give in to temptation and sin, then he just kicks us when we're down and tries to make us believe we're unlovable, unforgivable. And so your point is, is so right that this moving past that shame and then seeing that God can do something um, is so key.
2: How personal is this book um, to you?
3: It's very personal. You know, I had been in ministry when when really I hit bottom. I'd been in ministry about 25 years, uh, had been married about 27 years, and I was the poster child for burnout. Uh, I was just a hard driver who just on some level believed if I pushed harder, I could escape what were those either hurts from the past or even the disappointments in the present. And I became very bitter and very blinded. And unfortunately there came a point where I crossed some ethical and moral boundaries that required me to step back from, from ministry and walk through restoration. Um, I had broken my covenant with God, with my wife. I had, you know, brought hurt and to other people, my children, family, and really had brought shame to the name of Jesus Christ. And so personally, I had to walk this journey when Ezekiel, although he hadn't been wrong, but in comparing to drive to the ash sheep on um, was like, Lord, I don't even see a way forward. But God revealed himself in a powerful way. And so this book comes out of uh God healing me and my family from a broken place that many would have thought wasn't possible. Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. So this is definitely a hopeful book. What are some of the lessons that you learned on your journey to uh, to healing?
3: You know, there there are kind of a few that really stand out to me as a pivotal, and and that is that God can see us through the lens of forgiveness and give that forgiveness, but that I have to be patient for the journey of other people to see my heart and my life. Mm. It's, it's kind of like I want... God sees my heart, and so He knows my intentions, but other people can only see actions. And so I think a first principle was, I couldn't be frustrated or put demands or deadlines on people for their journey to not just forgive, but also to trust. And that was pivotal because the deeper the relationship, sometimes the longer the journey. And so it was important for me to learn to rest in my identity in God, even though He was very clear to me that the journey of healing with people is different. And just because they have a journey doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. But that was a first key lesson.
2: Mm, mm. Yeah, and that can be very, uh, very challenging. Now, what advice do you give to someone who feels that they have made such horrific uh, mess of their life, they've made such serious mistakes, that there's really no hope for a better future? I mean, you've already given us a glimpse into your own story and that journey of healing and restoration. But what do you say to the one who says, well, but, you know, my situation is, is beyond the pale?
3: You, you know, first is that even though it's hard for us to, to come to grips with what we're feeling, there's a couple key principles. It's good to acknowledge what we're feeling, but I, I heard a pastor say once, my feelings are real, but they may not always be right. Right. And in that, there has to come a place where I would say to somebody that we have to make a decision, even if our emotions have to come along in time, where the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is greater in my life than what I've done wrong. Uh, and so there, there's a place of saying, Lord, even my failures can't be bigger than you. And then, second, in that, I believe there's a hope in Scripture that because God doesn't hide from us, the broken people that he had to redeem and restore. I mean, many people, if we were God's HR department, we, we may not have hired Moses, you know, or David. We would have said that, that, that Peter was there. We would have said, what do you mean Rahab or Ruth? But God has this amazing way to say, look, you see what that's broken? But that person is ready for me to be their everything. And now I can restore them we even them as great saints of the Scripture— But we have to be mindful, they began as broken people that God had to redeem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a hopeful look at how to redeem our past from that status of dry bones. Again, my guest this afternoon is Kevin Goose, uh, and his book is titled Dry Bones Redeeming Your Past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kevin Goose, who is the author of Dry Bones redeeming your past. Now, you break down three ways in which we look at our past, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, we are beyond hope. Can you describe for us these three ways in which we tend to look back and uh, imagine that there is no uh, hope for redemption?
3: Yes. The first is the glory days, and that's where a person looks back at a time and says, my life was at its best then, and they are struggling with either trying to recreate it in the present or having a frustration that they can't, and so there's a sense in which they have to let go to move forward. The second is when people have regrets over missed opportunities. It's kind of like the the opposite of the first. It's saying, Oh, if I would have done something different or better or right, my life wouldn't be where it is now. And they believe that they're living a consolation prized life. as well, this is the best I can have, and they don't have a full picture of redemption. And the third is the healing from past pain, which can be either or both pain that I've caused or the pain that has been done to me. And there are times people are dragging that along with them as an open wound or a bitterness or a pain in their life that God needs to bring healing to.
2: Mm. You write that our decisions can either break the bonds of the past or perpetuate past failures into ongoing behavior. Explain what you mean by that and where we begin once we've identified, OK, this is where I am. This is where I'd like to go. How do I get from here to there?
3: Yes, I like to picture it from like a um a chore my mom used to give me as a child, and that was pulling weeds. I would sometimes try to snip those dandelions off at the top and think the job was done, but all it took was a little bit of heat and time, and and the weed would return. For many people, they'll look at the example or the event that just happened, and they'll try to you know, deal with that in the moment, but they don't go back to the root of where things have come from, and as a result, they tend to be on a repeating cycle. And so, one of the keys is that whether it's the glory days, past regret, or past pain, is being willing to kind of dig in, whether through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, a skilled helper, a pastor, to be able to dig in and say, "Now, wait a minute, where did this start in my life as a root?" Because this needs to be dug out. I'm tired of the snipping and going back, snipping, returning, and going back. And so by getting to the root, we can experience healing that doesn't just deal with the symptom, but deals with the core issues.
2: Mm. What role does humility play in redeeming our past?
3: Oh, this one's, this one's tough. You know, these tensions of Scripture, it, it tells us that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then He will lift us up. Because one of the challenges when we're trying to get our past redeemed is we can fall into the traps of either control, uh, impatience, or trying to force something. And humility is, is basically saying, Lord, I, I will stay in this posture of repentance and renewal as long as I need to and as long as you have me to. A great example is Zacchaeus, who when he comes to Jesus... He says, I'll give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've taken from someone, I'll return it fourfold. Well, Zacchaeus probably couldn't remember everybody he had ripped off. But he basically said to Jesus, I'm in a posture and place that as you bring people across my path, I'm willing to walk that healing journey. And so humility keeps us from being defensive, which could communicate to people that we're really not sorry. Humility is key to showing the core of our heart that we want to walk this journey with God and others.
2: One of the things we tend to do when we're on a journey is to look to the right and to the left, to look at others, compare ourselves to them. Uh, But you make the point that when we do that, we can um, distort the way that we see our own lives. We're perhaps less honest or or our, our goal is distorted or we think less than we ought to. How important is it that we not compare ourselves to others? And what do we do if that's a practice that we are in the habit of doing?
3: You know, if we look to others, the the problem is it's almost like a type of deflection. And so if we see that starting to happen, it it doesn't mean we don't love others, but we recognize, I can only take responsibility for what God has placed before me. I think of Peter when Jesus restored him after his three denials. Right after Jesus restores him in John uh, 21, Peter looks at the Apostle John and says, Well, Jesus, what about him? And the Lord says, well, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I believe that when we're distracted, it's like the runner who's coming to the tape, but they look to the side to see how the other person's doing. It slows them, and it actually robs them of the victory that they were intended to have. And so I think that it's not a self-absorption, but rather it's a focus that says, my eyes have to be on Jesus and the work he's doing in me. Then others will see that through me. If I compare myself to others, we tend to get coveting or jealous or we feel inferior, and all of those are just hurdles in the healing process.
2: That is so true. I ran for the University of Oregon, and one of the things the coaches always drummed into us was to run straightway through the line, not to look to the right or the left, because you're absolutely right. It will deprive you of those um, absolutely critical seconds as you approach the finish line that mean the difference between victory and defeat. So that's such great, um, great advice. Now, I know for you, the church... Um, came alongside and supported your journey toward healing. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because I think people have different experiences. What role should we anticipate the church uh, to play? And as those of us who are the church are listening, what should our response be as we're witnessing uh, or participating in the journey of uh, those who are looking to see their past redeemed?
3: There are kind of two categories when it comes to the church that I think are pivotal. One is what I call those those core people who will be part of the redemption process. Think of like with the Apostle Paul, Ananias who came to him right after his conversion, or Barnabas who went to him and believed in him and built him up during his discipleship journey. God will have key Christians who can see past what we did and into the core of who we are, either because maybe they weren't hurt as deeply or God's just given them a tremendous gift of a redemptive heart in how they see others. It's vital for a person to connect with those core people who can help along that journey. As to the crowd, I think if people they know someone who's who has fallen morally or has failed and committed sin is that we should never celebrate it. And second, we should avoid cynicism. It's okay to say, I'm mm. disappointed, I'm hurt, um, I feel betrayed. Those are truthful statements, but the recognition is to say the, Jesus is more powerful than what they have done wrong in my life. There are people who showed grace that were part of the crowd. Now, long-term, I didn't necessarily stay in, in deep relationship because I was no longer their pastor, but they did it the right way before, so to speak, that relationship faded as it, as it needed to, while others in the core, they walked with me over the course of months and years, and God used them in a pivotal way in my life.
2: We're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My guest is Kevin Goose. Uh, Bitterness played a role in your healing process, and it's not altogether uncommon. If you are reflecting back on those glory days or regrets over missed opportunities or um, you're healing from past pain that either you inflicted on others or others have inflicted on you, how important is it not to uh, descend into bitterness on this journey toward healing?
3: It is essential. Uh, unfortunately, I learned the hard way. When Paul in his letters talks about how bitterness can cause us to bite and devour one another, uh, Jeremiah the prophet, God even said to him in Jeremiah fifteen nineteen that the precious and the vile had to be separated or sifted. Bitterness is a poison. It, it, it's something that can be vile in our lives, and what it does is it pollutes the precious work of God. And so bitterness focuses on... What life isn't that I wish it was or what the other person did or your frustration over what I did. And one of the keys was recognizing that God had to extract that and reinstate in my life and as he does in others' lives. Gratitude, thanksgiving, praise, uh, you know, in the scriptures, whether it's Job or other characters, they teach us that even when life is difficult we can come to a posture of worship and praise and joy, but bitterness will just pull us down. And for some people, they're concerned, but if I let go of that, the other person will get away with it. Or what if God forgives them? But at the core, bitterness hurts the individual. As one pastor, uh, Jimmy Evans says, forgiveness doesn't make the person right, it just makes me free.
2: Mm, that's so good. We're talking with Kevin Goose. His book is Dry Bones Redeeming Your Past. We're going to take a quick break and continue our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back, you're a uh Listening to The Georgine Rice Show, we're talking with Kevin Goose. He is a pastor and author. His latest book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. It is a personal work. He doesn't just write about the subject from a uh, the standpoint of uh, just being theoretical, but this is an experience he has. Uh, has enjoyed in being reconciled and restored and offers his insight in scripture uh, to uh, those who are in that same position. One of the things you write about is that we oftentimes try to justify our behavior, even when we know it's wrong, and we can uh, really struggle with just admitting that this was wrong. There's no justification for it, although we may have a list of reasons why it happened. Can you talk a little bit about um, having that uh, perspective where you're willing to just Admit what's wrong rather than um, uh, trying to justify our behavior?
3: Yes. What happens is with justifying our behavior is that somehow I'm trying to say that someone else's wrongdoing justifies me doing wrong. Or in some cases, I'm looking for a shortcut to a destination or a goal. And so what happens is there's these defenses. So, like, think of Adam in the garden, he tries to blame God, he tries to blame Eve. Yet the most beautiful example in scripture is David in Psalm 51, where after confronted with his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, and Nathan the prophet comes to him, and we get the psalm comes out of his brokenness. He starts with saying, Lord, against you and you alone I have sinned. And we went there was adultery, there was murder, there was deception. But David understood. The problem began with his relationship with god and then it affected everything else if we're willing to just say lord no excuses uh no explanations i sinned i was wrong what it does it kind of lets our guards down it breaks down the defenses and then it opened us up for the healing otherwise we're trying to jockey and play games with god and others when God then has to wait for us to become completely broken and ready for his restoring and forgiving work.
2: Oh, that is so good. But I think we do tend to uh, try to fix the people around us rather than work on ourselves when our own past needs redeeming. I suppose that just is an outgrowth of our sin nature, but the temptation is to deflect attention from ourselves, to blame shift, and even in cases where there is blame to go around, what you've just described is what God is is calling us to, is to come honestly before him for the, the role that we have played.
3: Yes, because at the end of the day, I can't take responsibility for what someone else has done. I can only take responsibility for my part, even if someone doesn't seek forgiveness, and I think they should have, or if someone didn't apologize, and I think they should have, it, it, if we can just get ourselves away from that, we come down to, okay, mm-hmm. Lord, before you, I want to have things right. The other reason is, is that if I put focus on others, I can try to become the teacher while I'm still in the role of the student. In other words, God is still, I would say, simmering things, soaking them through our lives and teaching us, and he wants us to wait until it becomes something in the deep place of us before we share it. I know that God put on my heart two to three years before the book was published, the idea of it, but God made it clear. Yeah, but I've got to get you far enough down the road and I've got to do a deeper work in your life before you can really talk about it. And so sometimes we're excited to share what he's teaching, but we have to be the student before we step into the world of trying to offer help to others.
2: Mm -hmm. You write about uh, what you call rationalized compromise. Can you give us an example of uh, what that is and uh, how we can avoid it?
3: Yes, yeah, so what happens in rationalized compromise is it may not be my failure, but I see the failures of others, and they're significant enough that I could point the finger and say, ah, they're the reason that I'm not close with God or not close with others. So sometimes it could be the flawed messenger situation and where a pastor like myself has to walk through restoration. Maybe it's someone who tees in on scriptures that speak about other people's sins, But neglect the ones that speak to my heart. It's like the phrase, I love what the Bible says to others. I'm just not too fond about what it says about me. It's this sense of rationalized compromise that I look at what's around me. And then what happens is I'm blind to what's going on in me. And I'm like a person driving down the road with no side mirrors or rearview mirror. I'm crashing into others and causing damage and pain. And my blind spots are actually causing as much, if not more, problems in my mm-hmm. sphere of influence. Rationalized compromises where we say, all right, I may not agree with what that person did, but let's put the side mirrors and the rearview mirror on and let me see things from God's perspective.
2: Yeah. Let's talk a bit about uh, forgiveness. You talked about it earlier in our conversation, but uh, what does forgiveness look like in the context of redeeming your past? Now, that may apply to me as I'm seeking forgiveness um, from God and others I may have hurt. It might be forgiving others who have hurt me. And uh, as you uh, talked about earlier, forgiving myself. What does forgiveness look like and entail when seeking to redeem one's past?
3: The first is, harking back to the earlier statement, is that I have to acknowledge that Jesus is greater than every sin, including the sins committed against me or committed by me. So when Jesus teaches us that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, we make a decision that even if our emotions need time or our thoughts are wrestling, that we do not commit, so to speak, a type of idolatry where someone's evil Is greater than God's good. Second, as we walk through that forgiveness, we have to learn to walk in the light of His forgiveness of us even before others are able to forgive and trust us. We must be patient to walk with them, but there's the essence in which our identity has to be solid in God. It's kind of like a phrase a pastor who spoke into my life said. He said, Kevin, you are who God says you are. We have to know who we are in God even as we're walking through the repairing journey with others and then finally part of that forgiveness whether it's forgiving ourselves or forgiving others it's this recognition that i can't tell somebody when to trust me but i can choose to be trustworthy and if it's forgiving another person it's just saying god they may or may not be close in my life moving forward but i can't let what they've done hold me back and if it's my sin that needs to be forgiven, it's acknowledging that God has a plan that moves beyond that moment. And he doesn't want that to be the defining chapter of my story.
2: Mm. Yeah. At the end of the book, you um, use a metaphor of uh, how people respond at an accident scene. I found that very intriguing. Can you describe a little bit about that that section of the book in which uh, you list some of the reactions people have to an accident um, and how that relates to this journey toward redemption.
3: Yes, see, picture yourself in a traffic jam later interstate, and we know where there's an accident up ahead, and as we come up, there's all these different people. The healthy ones are the first responders. The men and women whose job it is is to help remove the accident and then help those who are impacted and injured on the road to healing and restoration. The others are people that we call like the historian the one that wants to keep reminding you what you've done wrong, or the gossip, the one who just wants to tell others, the one who celebrates that they didn't fail like you did. And so what I described is is that in the accident scene, not every person we come across in the accident of our lives is from God or is best for our healing. We need to look for those trustworthy people who want God's best for us and recognize there'll be people who come in and out that may want to observe and see the wreckage, but they're not interested in what happens after that. And so the chapter is very much about helping people
2: discern who are the helpful people and who are the others we need to let drive on by. But that's such a great uh, part of the book. I really appreciated that. Again, we're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My uh, guest is Kevin Goose. Any final uh, advice you'd like to give to those um, who are beginning that journey toward redemption and seeing that their past can, in fact, be put in its proper context when they uh, come to God and seek that, um, that restoration?
3: I would say, one, complete surrender to God. Even if we don't know where things are going to go from here, I would encourage them to start with placing everything in His hands and let Jesus Christ be the center of their life. Two, be patient. Sometimes healing is instantaneous, but other times God chooses to work in a journey. It may seem like it'll never end, but to stay patient and don't try to look for shortcuts. And third, even though there may be times where our feelings or our thoughts may point us to past coping mechanisms or past behaviors, we have to recognize that we put those things behind us. We never want to be the one who returns back. God is leading us to the promised land And there'll come a point where the wilderness must be behind us. And so there's a resolve within them. And then just finally, that even when they're not sure who they are, read what the Bible says about what God declares over their life and let those be reminders of who they are and who they can be
2: in him. Amen. Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us today. I so appreciate you and your book, Dry Bones. Thank you for having me.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I have mentioned here many times that I've had the opportunity to travel to places in the world where it is either illegal or unsafe to follow Jesus Christ. And the persecuted church has been near and dear to my heart for many, many years. And I bring it up from time to time to remind us that we are members, of course, of the body of Christ that spans not just in our community, but all across the globe. And that for many followers of Jesus, the ultimate price is paid for just simply being faithful to serve him. Christian Post featured an article that emphasized what we've talked about off and on for the last several, well, months the slaughter of Nigerian Christians that many are suggesting warrants international attention. The Catholic bishop, Achipa Wilfred Angabi of the Diocese of Markurdi in Benue State, Nigeria, says if we keep quiet, we are going to go extinct, referring to Christians. In June, the Congressional Values Action Team Caucus, it met with the bishop and another reverend, And they shared their testimony of atrocities committed against Christians in Nigeria by Islamic extremists and about the complacency of the Nigerian government. Well, the meeting rallied um, support behind House Resolution 82 here in this country. It was introduced by Representative Chris Smith. And it expressed the sense of Congress that the Biden administration officially redesignate Nigeria as a country of particular concern for grossly violating religious freedoms and appoints a special envoy for Nigeria and the Lake Chad region. An estimated 5,621 Christians worldwide were killed for their faith last year. Those are the ones we know of. 5,621 met Jesus. At the hands of violent um, opposition of those 90 percent were Nigerian, according to a January report by Open Doors International, a nonprofit group that advocates on behalf of persecuted Christians. The report says militant groups such as Boko Haram, Islamic State, West Africa province and other Fulani militants inflict murder, physical injury, abduction and sexual violence on their victims. Western media commonly frames the violence in Nigeria as a herder-farmer conflict propelled by climate change and resource scarcity, despite U.S. government reports that one of ISIS's largest and most powerful regional branches controls broad swaths of territory and has killed or displaced thousands of people in Nigeria and neighboring countries. Now, records show that Fulani militants attacking Christian communities, burning churches, Summarily killing schoolchildren, kidnapping priests for ransom, and often executing them, 12 Nigerian state government officials adhere to Islamic Sharia law, contributing to discrimination and violence against Christians according to International Christian Concern. The Religious Freedom Institute's Nigerian Atrocities Documentarian Project in April, in a report, shared a survivor's account of an attack in um, Kaduna State, he disclosed that the terrorists who attacked his community were seen in vans shouting "Alua Akbar while shouting uh, while shooting. Rather, the report explained that day about 42 people were killed and over 300 houses were raised. The attack didn't uh, in any way suggest that it was a conflict between Fulani herdsmen and indigenous farmers. End quote. There's a problem of mislabeling the crisis, Richard Kabe, a Nigerian who is president of the International Organization for Peacebuilding and Social Justice, said uh, last month in a press conference in Washington, D.C., hosted by the International Committee on Nigeria. Stop saying that it's a farmer herder clash and stop saying that it's a poverty issue and stop saying it's a climate change issue. End quote. Those issues are involved, he added, but they are not the core issue. The State Department denies that religion plays a role in these massacres. In its 2022 report on international religious freedom, Nigeria, it stated, while much of the violence involved predominantly Muslim herders and, depending on location, either predominantly Christian or Muslim farmers, banditry and other criminality, not animosity between particular religious groups or on the basis of religion, were the primary drivers of intercommunal violence. Well, so say those in Nigeria, that's false. In just the past month, 37 Christians have been killed by Fulani militants and other terrorist groups in Nigeria's Benue State, International Christian Concern reported. Another report by Nigerian-based research and investigative rights group Society said that more than a 1,000 Christians had been killed in the first 100 days of this year alone. Soon after becoming secretary of state in early 2021, Anthony Blinken repudiated the Trump administration's emphasis on religious freedom, declaring that there is no hierarchy that makes some rights more important than others. End quote. In its first full day in office, the Biden administration canceled a modest grant to help persecuted Christians in Nigeria document atrocities against them. No proof, no distinction. In contrast, the independent and bipartisan US Commission on International Religious Freedom explicitly recommended the US government redesignate Nigeria as a country of particular concern, or CPC for engaging in and tolerating systematic, ongoing and egregious violations of religious freedom as defined by the International Religious Freedom Act in its twenty twenty one annual report, as it has uh, every year since two thousand nine. But still, the U.S. State Department removed Nigeria from the country of particular concern list in 2021, without explanation, just before Blinken traveled to Nigeria. Smith, the New Jersey lawmaker, pressed the administration's U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, Rashad Hussein, about Nigeria's de-designation at the House Foreign Affairs subcommittee hearing last month. I share your concerns. I don't think we have much disagreement in terms of the substance of what's happening on the ground, Hussein said. The killings of people, even pregnant women and children, and the occupation of their lands to cause the cessation of all economic activities mirror the pattern of jihadi elements like Boko Haram in other parts of Nigeria. Angabi, the bishop, said in his July 18th testimony at the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee hearing, in response to the atrocities, a bipartisan group of 14 members of Congress have co-sponsored House Resolution 82 It seeks to redress the administration's cover-up. It is imperative that the State Department take action by adding Nigeria as a country of particular concern and make clear that the U.S. government condemns and continued... The continued egregious actions in Nigeria, Representative French Hill, a co-sponsor of the resolution, said the resolution echoes the cries of uh, Bishop Angabe that we cannot remain silent while Nigerian civilians are being killed in large numbers for their faith. Nigeria is the regional anchor of West Africa, and when Nigeria is unstable, the entire region is unstable president of Religious Freedom Institute, in his testimony before the subcommittee said, we also do not want to see falling dominoes of falling, uh, failing states, millions of destitute refugees and a global petroleum shock. Nigeria's friends uh, care about Nigeria, both because it will affect the United States sooner or later and because the citizens of Nigeria deserve justice and peace. It is heartening to see that politicians are considering helping but as members of the body of Christ, we have access to the ultimate authority. And I hope we will continue to pray for and advocate for the persecuted church wherever it exists in Nigeria and elsewhere. Want to thank James Blind for producing, Dave Ken for, uh, King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks
1: for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com. And like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ